Malachi. We're doing an introduction to the book of Malachi, and I've got some notes here for you. Uh, we'll see how this goes. Uh, the first thing of Malachi, the word Malachi, the name, I think it's a personal name. I think the book of Malachi was written by a prophet named Malachi. But there are those that consider that it's, a, it's a, a, just a title. Because the name Malachi, you can see right there, I've got it written down there for you. Malachi, it means my messenger. And within this book, I've got two verses written there with it in squares for you. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, at the end of the book, it says, uh, Behold, I send my messenger, uh, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger, there's the name again, of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So some would say, it's just, this is, the Malachi means the messenger, uh, and it also repeats again in chapter 2, verse 7. It uses the term messenger again. Uh, so that's, that's interesting because his name actually means messenger, and this is about the messenger that's coming. Um, another stretch or speculation on this, some of the Jews, I've got it written in here, the details. Some Jews uh, considered this to be the code name for Ezra, that this book is really written by Ezra, who is Malachi, but calls himself the messenger. Uh, that had some traction, uh, it, it, but it's also been put down because Malachi is a personal name. It's just like Jeremiah, the name means something. Isaiah, the name means something. Habakkuk, they all mean something. Uh, and it's typical that the name of the author, the name of the prophet is the name of the book. So with that being said, uh, I, I don't think there's anything to be, you know, to be gained from that because I do think it's an individual, but it is interesting nonetheless. Um, that's what you see on the first page. The second page of the notes uh, kind of explains what I just said there at the very top, the bullet points there. Uh, there is an Aramaic targum uh, that adds after Malachi 1.1, it says, whose name is Ezra the scribe. So Malachi, the oracle of Malachi, who is Ezra the scribe. Uh, again, but that doesn't gain much traction, I don't think. Um, the oldest manuscript, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about when this was written. It's somewhere written uh, 485, you know, before Ezra came. That's why I got this back out. Up to, I've got Malachi written right here, about this time, Malachi 432. That's about the time of Nehemiah's second return. Uh, and I, I'm going to put Malachi right about there. But anywhere in this time frame is probably where Malachi uh, takes place. I think there's some clear clues as far as this time frame. We'll look at some of those. But what's also interesting, assuming it's been written, that Malachi prophesied, lived, and wrote between 485 and, say, 420, uh, your first, and I've got a picture of it right there, uh, the earliest text of Malachi is found in the Qumran Dead Sea Caves, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's titled, we talked about this, the when we're going through the book of Mark at the end, how all the papyrus have numbers, it's, it's, it's number 4QXII, uh, or, yeah, 4QXIIA, and it's got Malachi chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, and Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, and other parts go all the way up to chapter 4. Uh, but that comes from 150 B.C. So that's 150 to 125 B.C., and that is an actual manuscript of the text 
which if it was written, let's say 450 B.C., you've got a text within 300 years. And I mean, we're within, this manuscript is within 275 to 325 years of the day of Malachi, which is, again, uh, giving you some, it wasn't an artificial book. It wasn't made up. There's also one from 75 B.C. Uh, There's a, Another one from 50 B.C. in the Damascus document with Malachi chapter 1, verse 10, Malachi 3.16. So Malachi, as far as the manuscript uh, attestment, is very, very solid, very good. And then, of course, you're going to get it in the Septuagint and then the Masoretic text that we use today to translate our English Bibles, uh, and it's all around. The content on the middle of the page there, there's 55 verses and 47 of the verses our personal dresses from the Lord. And that is going to, now we're going to get into kind of what the book is. Of course, it's Malachi's the prophet. Uh, but you've got to, as we read through it, is Malachi speaking for God or is God speaking through Malachi? And the way it is written is it's God speaking because it's a lot of thus says the Lord, the Lord is speaking. And we'll talk about that here in, in just a moment. Malachi is addressing these things in the content. Uh, and again, you, you know these, this, this time period right here because we've gone through Ezra, we've gone through Nehemiah, we went through Haggai, Zechariah, we went through these, so you know this time frame, what's going on. They're, they're a struggling community, they're coming back, they're the remnant, they're rebuilding. They've got opposition from the nations around. Uh, the people aren't always committed. One of the things that could come up in this book, and I'll say it again tonight, but Haggai and Zechariah in 520 really took a despondent people that had come back from Cyrus, letting them come back uh, with Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, and they kind of just kind of fizzled out because the Samaritans kind of caused opposition, probably because the Samaritans were opposing the restructuring of Judah, the rebuilding of the temple, because that was probably their territory that Cyrus was going to break off and make into a province of Judah, and Samaria was going to lose part of their land, their, 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 what they were governing. And so the people got discouraged, as you know. But Haggai and Zechariah came and kind of fired the people up, and they got the temple built by 516. But what, when, they were, when they were writing, they were encouraging the people, not deceiving the people, not lying to the people uh, any more than the New Testament lies and deceives you when it says Jesus is returning that there's the kingdom of God is going to manifest. The day is soon. Be ready. Well, these people heard the prophecies, just like some people hear the New Testament prophecies, and they're like, okay, well, that's 520, and now we're down here in, you know, 420, 430, and we're we're, going to restore the house of David. There's no king. They're going to uh, be wealthy, you're going to obey the covenant and will prosper and it'll open up the, the, the abundance to the people of Israel. They're still having struggles with poverty, still having trouble with oppression. They're still ruled by, still paying taxes to the Persians. And there could be some discouragement, despondency because of like, and you're going to hear it in the book, when is this going to happen? I mean, we, we, we keep hearing all these promises and nothing. And so in the middle of page two, there's a moral deterioration. Once, you, once the promises of God are given up on or you think it's been too long, that, that's going to affect, just like your theology can help purify your life, your corrupt theology is going to let you just drift off into moral decay. And they were there. Spiritual lethargy, 
lethargic, you know, the priesthood, everyone. Uh, They're failing to bring the tithes, and that's been a theme throughout Nehemiah and Ezra is trying to get the people to bring their tithes, and Nehemiah's had to reset that twice, we saw in his book. Uh, talking about divorce, intermarriage and divorce is an issue, economic struggle and oppression. And then it mentions gifts being offered to the governor. Uh, Nehemiah made a point of it that when he was ruling, that he, uh, he never took anything for himself. He, he took care of himself, not like the other governors. He, he actually refers to other governors who took favors or gifts from the people. Now those other governors could have been the ones that came before him, like between Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. He could be talking about the other governors that were there representing the other nation, like the Samaritan, like uh, Sanballat or Tobiah, or the other governors that were receiving gifts. Or he could be talking about those that were working in between while he was absent. Uh, but it does talk about bringing gifts to the governor. Uh, the date is unknown of when this was written, but here are some absolutes, and I think you'll see, is one, uh, it, it can't be on this side of 520, because the temple is rebuilt. There is a temple. So it's got to be, on, it's got to be 516 going this way. Uh, so, I mean, we, we can, it's not a, narrowing it very much, but it's not on that side. Uh, it's post-exile. It's Judah after they've come back from captivity. And they've not just come back and are getting started. They've come back, gotten started, got discouraged, and drifted away. And are actually blaming God. There, there's actually a disconnect with God. And you can see it happening when, when you take the Word of God and you turn it into a contemporary prosperity. God is going to do these things. And then all of a sudden... It doesn't, and then you start asking questions, you know, why is there evil? If, there, if, there's, if I was God, there wouldn't be evil in the world. And so it, why is all these bad things happening? It becomes an excuse. So that, that indicates some kind of a process of, of returning, building the temple, having some promises, facing some difficulties, things are still difficult, I'm losing momentum, I start becoming, I deteriorate morally, stop taking the temple serious, now I'm breaking the covenant, now I'm under the curse. Why does God even matter? And that's kind of where they're at, and Malachi's there to kind of wake them up. Uh, it's pretty clear, I think, it's during the Persian Empire. Uh, again, a reference to the governor. Uh, the hope-inspired 520, that's that last bullet point there, fi- in 520, has kind of faded away. The suggestions by scholars of when this was written is, uh, and I'm going to write these numbers, 460, 450, 430, and this is, I kind of refer to this already. It, it could have been, if Ezra comes back in 458 B.C., it could be before Ezra and Nehemiah came back. Again, I can't answer this. I've got, I, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm leaning towards this one. Uh, that doesn't make it right. That might just be that, you know, that's my preconceived desires for it to be there. Uh, a lot of scholars look at it up here, either before Ezra and Nehemiah or sometime during that time period. But some think he's kind of setting the stage for the coming of Ezra. And, and the situation in Malachi, you know very well what's going on in Ezra's life and Nehemiah's life. We spent a couple years going through pages and notes and maps. And so this book, whenever you hear the prophecies and what, he, what God is saying, where does that kind of fit? And it fits all, it fits all this. I think it fits here best, so a lot of scholars feel it fits best up here. And that's, 
I would always say that's probably because of my lack of understanding. Uh, but I like this. But anyway, 460 before Ezra came back. Nehemiah comes back in 445. And so that would mean he's coming in, Malachi's talking, and then Nehemiah comes in. And that would mean Nehemiah came and fixed all the problems Malachi is addressing, Nehemiah would fix. Now that's a good sell. If you want to sell the date, Malachi is chewing the people out, and what they need now is a Nehemiah. And Nehemiah shows up, fixes all the problems. Uh, same thing here. Ezra comes in response to Malachi. Nehemiah comes in response to Malachi. I like to push it down here. Maybe just to extend the storyline a little further uh, is down here after Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah have done their work. Nehemiah has reset the stage the second time and the people then are going to spiral again out of control. And Malachi is going to come in at the end of Malachi's time towards the end of Artaxerxes' reign, which I think it ends in 425 B.C. That's when Malachi is coming in. It's somewhere in here. And again, I'm going to be kind of looking at it. That's where I'm at right now. That does not make it right, but that's where I'm going to put my chips right there. And that's kind of what's taking place there in those verses uh, at the bottom of page 2. Page 3, the historical setting. Uh, yeah, the very top of page 3 there. It's 430 B.C. after Nehemiah and Ezra at the end of Artaxerxes' reign, 425. That's kind of where I think. But listen, if you say, well, I'm wrong if I'm wrong. I'm wrong by 20 years or 25 years. I mean, it's, it's not like, I would not consider, when we start talking about uh, coming up on Monday nights, I'm excited about that, the, the heresy and deception, uh, things that you can't accept. This would not be one of those if I'm off a date. It doesn't, I don't think it's a heretical teaching. I, it's just media, more information. The historical setting, which kind of adds to this a little bit, which we're familiar with a lot of it, obviously. But uh, in 459, a world that is happening here uh, is the Greeks. Here's the coast. Here's Dead Sea, Galilee, Jerusalem. Here's Egypt. Uh, here's uh, the cities across the coast here. This is going to be Asia Minor. And coming from here, from Athens is going to be Greeks are coming. Xerxes, Artaxerxes' father, has actually already marched across here and gone to battle against the Greeks, made them mad, lost, and retreated. So Artaxerxes has this western front still irritated from what his father did, and they invade, well, in 459, the Greeks from Athens captured Memphis in Egypt. Now, when that, that means when... Me, that means the Greeks are down here. They've captured this, which means they also control the Mediterranean Sea at this point during Artaxerxes' reign. While Ezra and Nehemiah are doing these things, here comes the Greeks. And you know who's coming out of this? Alexander's going to be coming out of this. All this is setting the stage up right here, prophesied by Daniel. Uh, and so it's possible the Greeks control this coast of the Mediterranean Sea against Ashdod and against Israel. Uh, the Mediterranean coast, that's the next point, is controlled by the Greeks most likely. In between 460 and 454 B.C., Persia needed a strong presence in Judah. And see those dates, 460, 454, that's 458, 445. That's Ezra, who went down to establish the law of Persia and the law of the Lord. Nehemiah, who comes down to establish Judah. That's Artaxerxes going I need someone down here. I mean, it's like, like we got this map we had, we took down. 
But, you know, Judah is that backwater little place that no one cares about. Well, if this is all taking place, it's a big deal. Because we, this is like the next, this is the buffer zone. And that's what it's going to be, especially when the Greeks come and the Seleucians and the Ptolemies, the two Greek generals and their families start fighting. This is going to become a buffer zone that Daniel spends a lot of time talking about, those Syrian wars. Uh, in 454, the Greeks are driven away from Egypt. So that is now, by 454, this has been resolved, and Artaxerxes has this back under control. 449, there's a peace treaty between Greece and Persia. And all of a sudden, this is no longer on the radar. This is no longer, by 449, uh, that's no longer a, a, a crucial spot like it had been. Uh, you can see Artaxerxes right around that time, saying that it doesn't need to be reconstructed. That's when Nehemiah shows up in 445, says, can we do it? He gets permission to do it again. And sometime in this time frame, 445 to 425, Malachi writes to continue what Haggai and Zechariah had come. And so with that information, I think you can reduce it to 445 to 425. Malachi is coming in uh, because all of a sudden the issues, the battles are over. Uh, and... They've kind of got it some, some breathing room. The style of writing that Malachi is written in. Here's how it's written. And you're going to read it yourself and hear it so you don't have to agree with this. But it's a covenant lawsuit and disputation. There's speeches. A lot of quotes. God saying one thing, then quoting what the people are saying or what they're thinking. goes back and forth. And it's similar to what we talked about at the end of Nehemiah where Nehemiah saw a problem and he would bring the word in the Hebrew was rib. He would bring a, a dispute. He'd bring a, conf a conflict. He'd bring a lawsuit against the people concerning the tithe or the wall or the Sabbath or something. This is the same style where they're coming against the speakers, coming against the audience and accusing them in a, a, a di dispute. It's different than the Old Testament prophets in a sense, the previous one, that just made declarations. This is more of a dialogue where he's making a statement and then they don't really make a statement back. He makes a statement for them. It's almost like a monologue dialogue where God is saying something, but you say, but I say, and you say, and here's the answer, and this is what's going to happen. And then you have the next situation. And so uh, the prophet confronts the people of God in a combative dialogue, which includes a claim of truth declared by the prophet. He's going to declare something. This is the truth. He's going to make some statement. And then a hypothetical dialogue response by the people. But the people say, but... And again, it's not really the people saying it. It's Malachi. But then it, when we get into it, it's not really Malachi. It's the Lord. The Lord says this. They says, but this is what you're saying. It's a hypothetical response, which then God has to come back and say, but this is the truth, which means this is worthless this excuse doesn't stand up to my truth uh, which then the presentation is of supporting evidence follows why this is what i want but you say we can't do that well this is what i want and why i want that is point a point b and there's your court evidence why i'm right and so it, it's again it's it's in that conflicting dialogue uh a disputation speech and what's also interesting supporting that is what is the topic of this book? The topic of this book is covenants. Did I spell that right? Covenants. 
and the covenants that are mentioned are chapter 2. You've got a covenant with Levi. Well, first of all, it, it just starts off talking about Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Right away, that, that's addressing the Abrahamic covenant. I've got a covenant with these people. Uh, but then he talks about the covenant with Levi, a covenant of our fathers. Talks about the marriage covenant. Then he talks about Malachi of the covenant or the messenger of the covenant. And all these covenants had that. So he's going to go through a series of covenants. And when a covenant is violated, uh, that would be a contract. When a contract is violated, where do you go to resolve the conflict in the broken covenant or the broken contract? You go to court. You get a lawyer. You get an attorney. And you, you, you file a suit. It's like, well, the Christians, we're not talking about being a good Christian or forgiving people. We're talking about God has made a covenant, and you're violating this covenant. You're violating this covenant. And he just keeps bringing these up, and I'm going to come at you because God is true, and he's keeping his end of the deal. People say, well, yeah, but Haggai and, and Zechariah uh, says it was going to be the, the kingship of David was going to return, and, and we don't even have that. It's like, well you don't understand the whole situation. And that's the, the book is going on. Okay. Uh, the use of quotations in the monologue form that we're going to see that. The Lord makes a statement that is not merely, a res, merely responded to in order to resolve the conflict, but the monologue of quotes becomes more and more complex going back and forth. Uh, and here's the second bullet point on that part about the quotes on page three. Sometimes the prophet speaks for, and this, this becomes confusing. I think the translations do a very good job of communicating this, but just so you straight up, the prophet speaks for the Lord, but in most cases, the Lord is speaking himself in first person. But what becomes confusing is even while the Lord is speaking in first person, he'll refer to himself in the second or third person, so it appears that Malachi is saying this, but it's still the Lord speaking in second or third person. Quotation formulas. Uh, three times says the Lord Almighty, one time the Lord says, one time this is what the Lord Almighty says. For example, in chapter 1, verse 9, uh, now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. And in other words, there's the Lord Almighty is saying that, but he's referring to, the, the, referring to himself in the third person, but it's the Lord speaking. Chapter 1, verse 10 uh, through 14. Four times it says the Lord Almighty in that statement or in those verses. The Lord Almighty is, is, is referred to, but the one who's referring to the Lord Almighty is the Lord Almighty. Um, so it appears Malachi is speaking in chapter 1 verse 14 when he says, Cursed be the cheat who has made in his flock or has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Uh, but returns to the, but now it returns to the first, first person. For I am a great king. So you see right there, you understand what I'm saying. Chapter 1, verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. That is followed with, For I am the great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So all that is, it's, it's obviously Malachi speaking or writing, but it's God speaking and sometimes switching from first, second, or third person 26 times, uh, it says, in this book, 26 times, says Yahweh of hosts, or in the NIV, the Lord Almighty. Four times says Yahweh. 
One time, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, and one time, the declaration of Yahweh. And so that's, throughout this book, it's Yahweh is continuing to speak. Uh, now, the divisions of this, this is kind of worthless just to look at this right here, like this, uh, because I've just got some divisions uh, without any text, is this right here, is it can be broken down into six parts with two uh, ends or two what we'd say additional parts and that's chapter one verses two through five chapter two or point two would be chapter one verses six through two through nine we'd, we'd have to read these and put these in context but that would make one two three four five six topics that are being addressed here the other way of breaking it down is three sections is chapter one verse two through chapter two verse nine is the priests are being instructed to honor god then chapter 2, verse 10, up to 3, verse 6, Judah is being instructed to be faithful to their covenants, not just to God, but to all the covenants, because they're morally declined. And then chapter 3, verse 7, verse 20 through 24, is Judah now is instructed to return to God. So in other words, the priests are rebuked, the people are rebuked for not keeping the covenants, and then the people are instructed on how to return to the Lord and that is, wherever we're at on this time chart, uh, it's, if we're going to finish this, if we're going to accomplish what God wants to accomplish, uh, you've got to return and get back on track. And it's interesting, it's going to end with, then suddenly the messenger of the covenant will come to the temple. And that messenger of the temple, messenger of the covenant, uh, we could say is Jesus, but it could also very clearly, and we, it's, it's connected to John the Baptist, John the Baptist will suddenly come and introduce another messenger of the covenant, per se. Now, I'm going to try to read through the book of Malachi very quickly here. Before we do, though, you can see at the bottom of page 4, these are verses Malachi, uh, from Malachi that are taken out and put in the New Testament at some level, including Romans, Thessalonians, uh, Revelation, Peter, James. So you've got Paul... Peter, James, Matthew, Luke, and John all using quotes from, uh, or at least references, building on verses right out of Malachi. Romans 9, 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? 2 Thessalonians 1, 12. And I've got those, the parallel verses written to the left of them. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.12 So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, obviously Malachi is not referring to Lord Jesus Christ, but he's referring to that person, the Godhead. 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. Matthew eleven ten, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among these born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John. So that's a very clear, un inarguable uh, fact that Jesus believe that john the baptist was fulfilling malachi's prophecy revelation 6 17 for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand 
1 Peter 1.7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor in, and at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So why, why all these problems? We're having all these problems. Well, we're t- if nothing else, we're testing your faith to see how genuine it is, and you will be rewarded for it. Uh, we just want to give up. Well, then you don't really have faith. James 4.8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Change your, or cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Matthew 11.14, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And then finally, Luke 1.17, he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of, of the just to make ready the Lord, ready for the Lord a people prepared and so john is going to come and prepare the people for the coming of the lord now in our final moments here i'm going to read through the book of malachi without comment holy smokes we got two minutes is that even worth trying to do i'm going to read the first chapter all right and then we'll quit because i think that would be rude okay chapter one and this is just the niv an oracle the word of the lord to israel through malachi I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. And that had happened historically at that time. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish they will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Verse 6, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, How have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering that to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings. From your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Verse 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense. And pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as a sacrifice, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared 
among the nations. And then I'm going to quit right there. But you can kind of hear the arguments and the debates going on. And it's definitely, you know, Malachi writing, prophesying, but it's definitely God coming right at his people and bringing a case against them and arguing it to the point of uh, they're backed up in a corner. Uh, part of it is their, their problem is going to be that they have misunderstood uh, the prophecies or they've, they've contemporized, we want all of this right now, similar things that we do. God has these blessings in Christ that are ours, but we, we want to translate that into something material, possessive right now, where if you look in the New Testament and throughout Israel's history, this is the age of suffering. This is the age of enduring. This is the age of faith. God will be faithful to all that he's promised, but when you twist it and apply it to something he's not referring to, you're going to become discouraged. You're going to become disgruntled. It's, like, it's not working. Like God, I don't think God's keeping his word. No, you, he's keeping his word. You just took his word and rephrased it and put it over here, trying to manipulate it. And I think that's going to set the stage for a lot of the issues that we see here in Malachi because uh, great things are going to come as a result of this, including the coming of John the Baptist, the coming of Jesus. And then even when he comes... It's not what they think. I mean, Jesus gets crucified. We go right through the book of Mark. He gets crucified, dies, and tells them, you're going to have to suffer too. He goes to heaven and says, I'll be back. And it's like, where is he? And Peter says, Peter says uh, in the end times, people will scoff, saying, where is this coming? Where is the creation? And did the flood of Noah really happen? It's like, none of these things are even real. It's like, yes, they are. You've just twisted them so you don't have to address them. Again, that would be theology, correct theology resulting in correct behavior. I'll pray, and next week we'll start Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. Father, we thank you for the chance to look into these things. We thank you for your truth and your word. We ask that we would be a people that would allow your word to speak to us, the truth that you've presented, and not allow our hearts to twist it into something that we want and that we would be pleasing to us, but we'd accept your word as it is, and not consider it to be contemptible, but rejoice in the promises you've given to us and the power you provided for us at this time in history. We do pray for our nation and pray for churches that they may see your light, see your glory, and turn to your word. Again, we thank you for this opportunity to be alive at this time in history. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here.